Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, who's behind vaccine disinformation? All right, let's start the show. Hey y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and this week on the show, a bigger story behind COVID vaccine misinformation. So as you know, COVID cases are on the rise right now. The Delta variant continues to spread mostly among the unvaccinated. Folks supposed to have common sense. But it's time to start blaming the unvaccinated folks, not the regular folks. It's the unvaccinated folks that are letting us down. And as much as public health officials and the Biden administration want people to keep getting vaccinated, a whole lot of Americans still have not done so. And there are a lot of reasons for this. But for many of those people, they're just refusing the vaccine. And a lot of folks think it's because of what they are reading online, on social media, to be specific. A bit earlier this month, a review of Facebook found that 11 of the top 15 vaccine-related posts on Facebook spoke negatively about the vaccine or were totally anti-vax. Now, when you look at the anti-vax posts on a site like Facebook, a lot of them seem pretty straightforward. Prominent conservative firebrands like Ben Shapiro or Candace Owens saying to their supporters, don't get vaxxed. But some of those posts are a bit more mysterious. And it's harder to tell who made them and where they come from. My first guest this episode says some of those posts, the mysterious ones, they might be part of a larger trend. This PR company sent out this little three-pager that, that influencers often get asking them to promote, you know, vacation packages or beauty products. But instead, it asked them to spread these very specific falsehoods and conspiracies about the Pfizer COVID vaccine. That is Max Fisher. He's an international reporter at The New York Times. And that PR company he's talking about, they were exposed by European influencers who did not take the bait. And after that, people began to dig. It turned out it was actually a basically a shell subsidiary of this Moscow-based company called AdNow that is just a like email spammer, basically, kind of like the the shadiest bottom barrel kind of internet company you can imagine. And it turned what that PR company was doing, that bottom barrel email spammer. Max calls this disinformation for hire. I mean, just think of like the Russian campaign in the 2016 election, which is the kind of large scale disinformation campaign where you think of like fake news websites, phony conspiracies that are spread to achieve a political purpose, uh, divisive content spread to achieve a political purpose, phony public sentiment, right? Think of like lots of fake accounts that are expressing some political attitude that's made to look grassroots, but turns out to be fake on behalf of someone. That was something that up until very recently, we thought could only be conducted by a handful of intelligence services, you know, big governments around the world. But in the last two years or so, there's been this rise of private companies, some of them quite small, some of them uh, a little bit bigger and more sophisticated, that have figured out how to run these operations at scale on behalf of whoever wants to pay them for it. And you say that it's usually some kind of political actor. So, like, is that politicians themselves, governments, people connected to governments or politicians? Who were the ones saying, do these campaigns? So part of the part of the appeal of this work for the people who hire them out is that 
like this vaccine disinformation campaign, we don't know who hired them out, but you could look at it and you can see, okay, who benefited from this? And the best guess that analysts have of this particular campaign is either the Russian government or the manufacturer of Russia's COVID vaccine, the Sputnik V vaccine. Because Wait, really? Yeah, because it, it, it turned out someone really sharp, I think it was a German reporter, noticed that the this little three-pager that they were pushing out to people had some of the same word-for-word language in the Sputnik V vaccine uh, promotional material. But it, but we don't know wow. for sure, but the, the range of people who, when we have been able to pin down who is hiring it or when we can make a really good educated guess who is hiring it, um, sometimes it's big governments, you know, ones you would think, Russia, China, but also democratic governments, India, Bolivia, I think another one. Oh, Brazil. And then you also see individual politicians hiring this out because it is so cheap and easy to do. There was one that really blew my mind of just a small town mayoral race where this guy running for mayor in Brazil was running a little mini Russia in the 2016 election disinformation campaign against his opponent. And what's wild to me about this is that it, it it shows how quickly and how completely this is becoming just part of the landscape for how governments manipulate their own citizens, how they conduct foreign yeah. policy, how politicians try to advance their goals. Really, anyone who wants to try to exploit the social web to make someone look bad or make themselves look good. Huh. So, you know, you hear this description you're offering of these shady campaigns happening online connected tangentially to Russia or governments or whoever. It sounds really scary, but are the folks doing these campaigns, how scary are they? How sophisticated are they? Are they really dangerous? And do they know what they're doing? Do they know what they're doing? That's a good question. This was the part of reporting this that really blew my mind, is that I really Uh expected it to be like, you know, Bond villain, like, running the campaign from their operations center a thousand feet beneath the earth, like really sophisticated. Well, that's what it feels like. When I began to read your article, I was like, oh, this is, this is some shady stuff. This is crazy, like sophisticated. Right. And that's, that's what they're mimicking. They're mimicking things that like, you know, the Russian intelligence services or Chinese intelligence services are doing. But when you actually dig into them, some of them are on the sophisticated end. Like there was one where it was a a DC based, pretty sophisticated, um, lobbying firm that was running a disinformation campaign in a few Latin American countries on behalf of right-wing governments there. But for the most part, it's like, it's like email spammers. It's these kind of bottom (laughs) barrel marketers who are running pretty um, unsophisticated services. Like I wrote about one that some researchers for the digital forensic research lab at the Atlantic council that they identified where it was this vast disinformation campaign operating in India to the benefit of the Indian government, including undermining reports about the coronavirus toll there, which has been terrible. And it turned really? out that it tracked back to this little two-person firm in Toronto, where it was these two like older guys, these two brothers, who had this little comm shop that honestly looks like it has not been that successful as a business. But they seem to have gotten into this business of doing disinformation for hire pretty recently, which I think is really striking because it shows how all of a sudden it's actually 
it's actually pretty easy to get into this work. It can be quite lucrative, which is why I think you see so many shady but unsophisticated actors, like this Russian company that's just a little online marketer suddenly getting into it. Yeah. Um, if I wanted to do this, how long would it take me to get up and running to have my disinformation for hire PR firm set up? What would I need? Uh, well, you've got an internet connection. I do. <laughs> if you... If you've got a little bit of money in the bank, maybe a few thousand dollars, step one is you set up a dark web account, maybe buy some Bitcoin so that you can do some untraceable transactions there. I don't know there. how to do that, Max. How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you give me about 20 minutes. I think we could set you up. It's pretty easy. All right. So I get the Bitcoin and then what? Get the Bitcoin, you get onto the dark web, you purchase a bunch of stolen bulk user data, which is very easy to do on the dark web for maybe a few thousand bucks. And that will allow you to segment and target your audience with as much sophistication as you want. You buy some off the shelf software that will help you set up uh, a huge number of fake accounts that will look real on any platform that you want. So you can fake having a local media company, you can fake having a citizen group or a bunch of public sentiment, and then go out and find a client, someone who wants to pay you maybe 20,000 bucks, and then you're off and running. Wow. So is Facebook going to stop this? Are they trying? <laughs> can they? <laughs> so uh, yes and, and no at the same time. Um, it's funny, Facebook and Twitter especially not so much YouTube, but Facebook and Twitter in the last couple of years have made a really, really big push to fight this on the back end. That is, they're really doing a lot of work to identify these campaigns, uh, root them out and expose them once they've occurred. And they've hired pretty much all the leading people in the field of tracking these kind of operations. But at the same time, if you talk to experts who track this stuff, if you talk to kind of cybersecurity officials, they'll say, yeah, sure, that's great. Facebook and Twitter are investing heavily in taking the campaigns down once they're on the internet, but their platforms are designed in a way that makes this stuff not only possible and cheap, but maybe inevitable because the, the design of the platforms, and this has been you know demonstrated to these companies over and over again, the engagement maximizing algorithms, the design features, everything down to the, the colors on the mm. app, which are designed to mimic uh, slot machines, is made in what? such a way to be addictive that is really favorable to divisive content, to emotion-provoking mm -hmm. content. And, and we know it's just a matter of empirical research that this not only favors, but encourages and incentivizes conspiracy theories, division, and disinformation. So even if Facebook is trying to take this stuff down, the very system they've created incentivizes the very thing that they're trying to squash out at this point. Exactly, yeah. And you almost kind of feel hmm. for the people at these companies who are fighting the campaigns because in some ways their enemy is, you know, the, the disinformation actors in Malaysia or Russia or wherever. But, but in other ways, although they don't see it this way, I think I do, in other ways, their real enemy are the, the people across the hall who are designing systems that encourage and incentivize and, and create these. Wow. So on the one hand, this stuff is pretty spooky. You know, mm -hmm. uh, these shady actors working on behalf of political actors spreading disinformation on everything 
from who knows what to COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm. But we also know, in spite of that being true, most of the disinformation right now about COVID and the vaccine here in America is coming through media platforms and media celebrities. Uh, It's coming from Fox News. It's coming from Newsmax. Some of the highest performing anti-vax content comes from conservative firebrands like Candace Owens or Ben Shapiro. Like, still, in spite of this rising threat of disinformation for hire, is the biggest threat to truth actually real people in the public eye sharing their names and who they are? Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point that the reason disinformation works in the first place is you have, you know, top down people, you know, politicians, media personalities, like you're saying, who are pushing these ideas out there and telling people to be receptive to it. And it's also a real bottom up phenomenon where because of polarization, because of conspiracy theories, racism, all sorts of social forces, There are a lot of people in this country and in the world who kind of want to hear misinformation and they or they are very receptive to it or they find it persuasive. And so it's this much broader kind of ecosystemic problem of social forces feeding into political opportunists, feeding into the nature of social platforms, feeding back into bad actors online, creating this kind of big self-sustaining feedback loop of people are receptive to disinformation other people are feeding it to them, and that creates more of a market for the same disinformation they're getting fed. Thanks again to Max Fisher, international reporter for The New York Times. All right, coming up, we talk about one of my favorite shows of the last year or so, Ted Lasso. And I was surprised by how much I liked it. It was uplifting and optimistic and cheerful at a time when I was really enjoying darker kind of things. I talk with one of the show's stars, Hannah Waddingham, about why I and so many other people liked such a cheery show during such a dark time. NPR's Planet Money Summer School is back. This season is all about investing. We've got stories of big bets, bubble spotting, and cute animals, too. Every Wednesday to Labor Day from NPR's Planet Money. So during this past year of pandemic... I watched a lot of TV, and I realized as I got deeper and deeper into pandemic life, I gravitated towards television that was not really uplifting. Tiger King, The Undoing, I May Destroy You, heavy, dark, and weird shows. But then, in the depths of COVID life, I discovered an Apple Plus show called Ted Lasso, and it was none of those things. You know, I think that if you care about someone and you got a little love in your heart, There ain't nothing you can't get through together, you know what I'm saying? Ted Lasso is earnest and uplifting and good-hearted and honestly full of love. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed this show. And I am not the only one. Apple Plus says the premiere of season two of Ted Lasso last week, it was their biggest show premiere audience ever on the service. So this show, Ted Lasso, it's all about a U.S. football coach who was recruited to coach a U.K. soccer team. But he knows nothing about soccer. And in fact, he was chosen to coach this team as part of the new owner's plan to sabotage them. That team owner is Rebecca Welton, and she is played by British actress Hannah Waddingham. You know what? I'll start bringing these to you every morning. Called Biscuits with the Boss. Ted, I'm sorry. 
Biscuits with the boss is not something that I have time for this morning or ever. I had the absolute pleasure of talking with Hannah about Ted Lasso's success and what we might expect in season two. And we also talked about why a show so full of light resonated so much with so many in what's been kind of a dark time. I had friends that told me, Sam, you have to watch Ted Lasso. It's such an earnest and uplifting show. And they're telling me in like peak pandemic. And I said, I don't know if I need this kind of uplift given where I'm at right now. And then before I knew it, it hooked me and just filled my heart with joy and cheer and love. Regardless of the pandemic or not, it feels like something that people needed at this time to get away from snark and bitterness and poking fun at people. And it feels like there hadn't been a truly wholesome comedy drama um, in years that I can think of. Oh, yeah. How would you describe your character, Rebecca, in like a 30-second elevator pitch? I would say a woman in her mid-40s who is deeply wronged by a husband she's still in love with. She takes his football team from him, thinking it's the only thing he ever loved, but realizes through the addition of a madcap goofball of a football coach that retribution is not the answer and that love is. Now, I read somewhere that some of the inspiration for this character came from real life. Someone named Karen Brady. She was the former managing director of Birmingham City FC, and she now works with West Ham United. I mean, barely, really. I mean, it was... It okay. was oh, tell me. Most of it, to be perfectly honest, wasn't. What I was saying about Karen Brady um, was that she... It was more her demeanour as she would walk into a press room. I was acutely aware of not wanting to make Rebecca seem just like a, a ball buster that would go in with, you know, rounded collars up to her neck. I wanted to find that line between a woman who likes to be glamorous, a woman who mm. perhaps is overtly glamorous in Rebecca's case because she's actually desperately trying to stop anybody coming in. She's turned herself into an ice queen, immaculately dressed. And the reason I wanted to acknowledge Karen Brady um, was because I like the fact that when she holds interviews or when she goes into a press room, you know that she's arrived. Mm. You know that she will dominate that room. She will have the last word. I mean, I've learned from the most competitive team game in the world that nothing is actually achieved alone. And managing that team and getting the best out of them is actually what's crucial in football. But she will look immaculate and groomed and glamorous and kind of old school feminine in the process. Yeah. Well, and there's this like hard line to toe because it's like a lot of people would see a woman impeccably dressed in charge of a room and think of some negative stereotypes of powerful women. But what your character, Rebecca, does, it's, you know, there are many scenes where you see her in control, you see her holding court, but it's not mean, it's just, it's just competent. She just knows what she's doing. She does know what she's doing because she's also learned an awful lot from, she even says, you know, there's not one person in this room that has seen AFC Richmond play more than me. And in all those years under the stewardship of the previous owner... I've witnessed nothing but profound mediocrity. And she can stand on her own two feet in terms of that. But of course, as soon as anyone throws a question to her about her own life, or as soon as her office door is shut and her laptop is open, you see all, all the walls come down. And if anybody presses her too much, she'll just shatter on the floor. And that I found intriguing to play. 
How much of your character, Rebecca, was given to you by the writers and how much of it was made by you? I've heard you say in certain interviews that the whole team trusted all of you to really make the characters your own. Yeah, I mean, literally from day one, of course, there was the script that we didn't really improvise from, but it is very collaborative. And certainly going into season two, my gosh, I've never been afforded the luxury so much of having a say in things like, you know, I would get one of the writers ringing me and saying, okay, so we're just getting to this bit. So so do you think Rebecca would do this? Or do you think she'd do that? Do you think she'd come from this kind of home? Do you think she'd come from that kind of home? And being included in that is just incredible. Or having the, having the art department ring up and go, right, what posters do you want on her walls as a, as a teenager? And it feels like that's, that's her room that I've, I've had a say in. Yeah. Yeah. So I read that the show script is full of musical references um, sprinkled all throughout season one and possibly season two. I didn't catch that the first time watching. What's been your favorite musical reference in Ted Lasso so far? Uh, would you know what makes me laugh so much? Here I am, a woman who's been 20 years predominantly in musical theater. I am surrounded by what we would call West End Wendy's. Jason... <laughs> And Brett Goldstein, as Roy Kent, whom nobody would ever think would be like this, they are girly, girly West End boys. They are absolutely, they know every musical, both here and on Broadway. They all know the back catalogue of Cole Porter. I mean, it's just extraordinary, far more than I do. That's amazing. So speaking of musical references in the show... Uh, you come from a musical theatrical background. You've done musical theater a lot, but there are actually opera singers in your family tree? Yeah, not just my family tree, my mother. My mother was a principal leading lady at Covent Garden before I was born. She then stopped to have myself and my brother and uh, decided you know, to keep the regular work. She went back into the chorus at the English National Opera at the London Coliseum until she retired when she was 72, I think it was. And also her mother and her father were both opera singers as well. Wow. So the force is strong with me. Yeah. Now, there is one scene in uh, season one of Ted Lasso where you do get to sing uh, the karaoke scene. The snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. Did it feel good to get to do that? <laughs> no, no. Jason will tell you himself. I bolted at it and, and, and said, why Why is the football club owner singing? And Jason was hilarious. He went, well, <laughs> for a start, why not? You've been West End Broadway girl for the last 20 years. I was like, right, fair enough. And, and he went, well, I just think this is a moment where Rebecca finally lets her hair down. She's away with the, the team that's becoming her team. Um, you know, away on tour and she wants to ingratiate herself to them. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they know. And the juxtaposition of her facade slipping slightly and the fact that Ted has a panic attack at the same time, the juxtaposition of that was just uh, too much to resist. Yeah, yeah, it was a lovely scene. You know, I really can't overstate the way in which Americans, myself included, have really been drawn to this show. We like it a lot. I know. So is it surprising <laughs> to see how much we're into this show? Honestly, coming from here where, you know, you'll get like some secret squirrels coming up going, oh, by the way, love Ted Lasso. Whereas you get off the plane and it like hits you like a tidal wave, both L.A. and New York. I was like, 
this is so lovely. It's almost, it was almost like being in the theater, people coming up and going, wow. oh my God, thank you so much for this show. It really got us through and we can't wait for season two and good job, all of you. And it's something that I know I won't tire of just because to be in something where strangers come up to you and say, thank you, how could you ever get tired of that? Yeah. Well, and American fans, we're so loud. We don't care what you're doing. We'll go up to you. You'll be on your phone changing your kid's diaper. And we're like, I love your show. Thanks for that. We can't help it. Do you know what? Long may it continue. I love it. I love it. Thanks again to Hannah Waddingham. She is up for an Emmy for her work in Ted Lasso. Up next, we'll play Who Said That with Hannah and one of her Ted Lasso co-stars, Jeremy Swift. He is also up for an Emmy, too. It's going to be an award-winning segment, I promise. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Audioboom. In Case File presents new podcast, The Invisible Hand, host Georgina Savage returns to her birth country of South Africa, where her cousin's family fight on the front lines of a conservation war against rhino poaching. Go behind the headlines as she immerses herself in the lives of individuals connected to the illegal trade in an attempt to understand the personal circumstances of those entangled in a crisis. The Invisible Hand is available now on your favorite podcast app. All right, so now we're going to play my favorite game, Who Said That? Ooh, and that. Who said that? And joining Hannah and I to play this week is her Ted Lasso co-star, actor Jeremy Swift. Hey, Jeremy. Hello, Sam. Thanks for being here. So this game is really easy. I share three quotes from the week of news, and you got to tell me who said it or what story it's about. I will give you lots of hints. There's no timer. There's no buzzer. Just yell it out. And because both of my guests uh, this week come from across the pond, the first quote comes from uh, somebody from Great Britain. Come on, then. Let's do it. The first quote is. Is, is it? Is it? Oh, go ahead. Can you hear that, that Jeremy is <laughs> no, already gonna... <laughs> trying to sabotage it? Is it my wife? Is it the queen? <laughs> <laughs> now, now. <laughs> Here is the first quote. This morning, I made a little cosy for my medal to stop it getting scratched. Um, so, yeah. Oh, is it Tom Daly? Oh, my God, it is. Do you know what? I was <laughs> just about to say it's an Olympian. Sure you are. You Come were on. just about to say it. Jeremy, you're in so much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so that quote came from Olympic diver Tom Daly of Great Britain. He won a gold at the Tokyo Games, but he was talking on Instagram in that quote uh. about a little cosy that he knitted for his gold medal. Did y'all see that? It was very no. cute. I didn't know that, but I thought that sounds like Tom Daly. He is a wonderful guy. So he has this Instagram account where he shares the things that he's knitted. It's called Made with Love by Tom Daly. And on the account, when he showed this little koozie for the medal, he said, The one thing that has kept me like sane throughout this whole process is my love for knitting and crochet and all things stitching. So Yes, I, how sweet. I can imagine that. Can you imagine me ever taking up knitting? I can't, no. I can imagine <laughs> using the knitting, knitting needles. <laughs> all right, time for our second quote. This one is uh, a story from the U.S., but it is about soccer or football, as y'all call it. That might help y'all oh, out. Oh, God. <laughs> Here's the quote. And actually, this quote is fill in the blank. So I'm going to leave a blank. You fill it in for me. Okay. MB Stadium does it all. Blank is still working on Donda in his new studio set up at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. No idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's a hint. This is a very popular American musician 
who is finishing his latest album in a soccer stadium in Atlanta. Kanye. Yes, yes, it's Kanye oh. West. In your face. God, no. <laughs> So this story is so bonkers. That quote actually comes from a tweet that came from Atlanta United FC, a soccer team here in the States. Wow. So the backstory. Um, Last week, Kanye had an album listening party for his new album, Donda, in the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. But after this listening party, which Kim Kardashian attended, uh, he just stayed in the stadium And he and his posse have turned the visitor's locker room into a studio. And he's putting the finishing touches on this album from this stadium in Atlanta. And they're still having games go on. So there are these photos of Kanye West wandering the stadium during soccer games, wearing all red and pantyhose as a mask. As you do. Uh, Do you know what? I have nothing to say about that apart from laughing my head off. I mean, I have one thing to say. Please find a way to include this plot line and Kanye West in Ted Lasso season three. Can I say please Please. not? (laughs) Remember, Sam is my football team. That ain't happening. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) So uh, this game is tied. Um, This final quote is going to determine the winner. And I got to say... For two guests that are not in the U.S. this week, it's probably going to be hard for you both. Okay. So I'm trying to think of how I can make this easier for you both. I tell you what, I'm going to say the quote and you tell me what kind of person might have said it. What occupation? Go for it. Okay. Occupation. Okay. Here's the quote. As climate activist Fergie would certainly say, the Fergalicious definition is to make our planet cooler. What kind of person said that? Uh, oh, I don't know. Somebody like Jimmy Kimmel or... No. Oh. You know, when I tell y'all what it is, you're both just going to shake your head at how absurd America is. Really? Yeah. It's not Trump, is it? I mean, he's, I mean, he's full on silent. What occupation was Trump in for a few years before he lost? Oh, he was crap. a politician who was in politics. Well, he's a TV presenter, ostensibly, well, wasn't he? You're true. a businessman. <laughs> a businessman. Let me just give it to you both. Yeah, yeah tell us. That yeah. quote about the singer Fergie and climate activism, it came from a U.S. House member. Uh, in the halls of Congress this week, Democratic House member Sean Kasten made a minute and a half speech all about Fergie and tying her popular song Fergalicious to climate change. As climate activist Fergie would certainly say, the Fergalicious definition is to make our planet cooler. So listen up, y'all, because this is it. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, better known as the F to the E to the R to the C. (laughs) And the more that I talk about it, the weirder it gets. Well, Greta Thunberg has a rival. I know. So the backstory on this, FERC stands for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. In his speech, he repurposed the words from Fergie's song, Fergalicious. to talk about FERC. And so part of his speech, he said, quote, coming home to air conditioning when it's hot, hot, that's Fergalicious. Get it? Like it? No? Awful? Bad? No. No. I think Jeremy and I are almost entirely asleep with that. (laughs) 
the like true beauty so, of y'all's politics over there yeah, is that so, y'all so baffled, politicians just yell and scream. Yeah, and definitely. it's part of the process. And people get to get loud and rambunctious. And because we aren't really allowed to do that, we have to do stupid things like turn pop songs into yes, climate yeah, change to get appeals. Yeah. Crikey. My favorite, there was one y'all had. He was very popular during Brexit deliberations, and he would say over and over, Yes. Order! <laughs> it's very fun. Anywho, on that note, um, <laughs> in true Ted Lasso fashion, this game is going to have to end in a tie. <laughs> just as it oh, should yeah. be on our show. Just as it should be. Yeah, very That's topical. Right. Thanks again to Hannah Waddingham and Jeremy Swift, both stars of the Apple TV show Ted Lasso. All right, take care. Cheers now. Thank you. Toodaloo. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. It's Michelle from Altadena, California. The best thing that happened in my week was when I was able to introduce my children to my biological mother, as well as their aunt and their uncle, my half-sister and half-brother. They've welcomed us with open arms and open hearts. I know it doesn't get better than that. I'm super excited because I got a new Toyota Corolla after getting in a car accident in March of this year. And I really look forward to going on road trips. The best part of my week was my husband safely finishing a two and a half month cross country bicycle trip. This is Della from Chicago, Illinois. And the best part of my week was seeing my patient's joy after giving her a small gift. I've been working with her with, for two weeks, recovering from a stroke. And on her last day of therapy, I gave her a little plant and she cried tears of joy. She was so excited. She almost had me in tears, and then she named the plant Little Della after me. I'm going to tell you the best part of my two weeks, which is my birthday. And my kids and my husband gave me the best gift, a notebook. But when I opened it up, the first three pages had coupons for me. And my daughter's coupon, she's 15 said one hug <laughs> thanks for the show i hope you had a good break and i look forward to listening to your show in my car i will talk to you next week bye thanks to all those listeners you just heard there michelle daniel margaret della and lee listeners as always we want to hear from you in this segment you can share the best part of your week at any point throughout any week just record the sound of your own voice and send that voice memo to us via email at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, Andrea Gutierrez, and Leah McBain. Our intern is Manuela Lopez-Restrepo. We had engineering help on this episode from Gilly Moon. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. All right, listeners, till next time. Be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.